Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, Matthew 19, our passage for this morning. C.S. Lewis, in one of his essays, talking about God's design for men and women, opens by recounting the scene from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, when Caroline Bingley is complaining to her brother about the balls, the formal balls that they have to attend. She says to her brother, I should like balls infinitely better If they were carried on in a more different manner, I would surely be much more, it would surely be much more rational, she says, if conversation instead of dancing made the order of the day. Much more rational, I dare say, says her brother. But then it would not be near so much like a ball, he says. That's the inside of Jane Austen right there. You can get a gathering of people, you can bring them all together into a big room, You can have sort of all the sort of lights and all that stuff, but if you replace the essential activity with something entirely different, maybe some sort of rational debate and lecture, you have something, but not anything so much like a ball, something entirely different. It's an apt, really, illustration for our passage this morning when it Uh, comes to what Jesus is discussing. He's discussing the issue of marriage, and particularly in light of the corruptions on marriage, the attempts of humanity to take what was the good and perfect gift of God and to construct it or deconstruct it or however you want to say it, to take what God gave and to completely remake it in their own fashion so that at the end, the product is not nearly so much like a marriage. It's something entirely different. Collectively, we're certainly seeing that today as we sort of undergo a a massive experiment, if you will, in our society about the concept of marriage. People attempting to replace whatever might be traditionally considered the activity or the nature of marriage with something of a total different sort, resulting in changes that leave any number of connections between human beings, but not any real marriage. In fact, in many ways, we've reached the low water mark, the low tide mark in our society, whereas everything washes out, all the wreckage that has accumulated over the last several decades is now being exposed, all the sunken junk that has come from our society's abandonment of God's plan. It started in earnest probably in the 60s, although corruption and infidelity and immorality has always been around. At a societal level, it seems to accelerate with the sexual revolution in the 60s, the advent of of the idea of feminism and the freedom from what was considered the bonds of oppressive marriages. The feminist movement lobbied strongly across the nation to loosen laws on on divorce, to make them not only cheaper, but also quicker so that people could speed their way out of their marriages. At the same time, people were in general delaying marriage as they devalued it uh, as a, a general rule, they were re- not necessarily 
abstaining. They were just replacing marriage commitments with shallow, widespread promiscuity, which itself was fueled by the advance of pharmaceutical birth controls, all of which delayed parenthood and children. Birth rates plummeted. People began to leave their marriages. Simultaneously, there was an explosion of media and pornographic images fostering widespread sexual perversion. Deliberate attempts in the media to normalize that kind of behavior fostered an advancing homosexual agenda, even giving way to gay marriage in some states and then eventually nationally, followed closely by transgenderism, gender fluidity. And now we see on our screens an attempt by media to normalize even polygamy by the shows that they're producing. We're at the point where any traditional idea of marriage is soon going to be in the minority. We're being eclipsed by any number of deviant forms attempting to replace what has always been understood as marriage. But what they're attempting to do is not marriage in the true sense. It may have some rationality behind it. It might have some explanation behind it. But it's not so much like a marriage, a true marriage, as it's defined by our maker. Even in the church, people are embracing this. It started, of course, with the demise of marriage in the church. Rates in the church uh, trended with the society. It used to be 50 years ago that if you were in the church, there was a 75% chance that you were probably a married adult. That's plummeted down to 52. Even in, in society, uh, in younger uh, people in churches, they are delaying marriage along with the world, and yet they're not abstaining from promiscuity. They're pursuing their same gratification just without the commitments and the bonds of marriage. All of these things are playing into the same sort of purposes of the undermining of God's ideal, God's plan, God's blessing for society through the institution of marriage. And of course, now we have uh, churches that have taken the next logical step of affirming uh, deviant ideas of marriage. For all those reasons, when we come to the passage that we have before us this morning, it cannot be overemphasized. It cannot be overemphasized. We turn our attention to this discussion, to this passage that revolves around a a question of, of divorce and marriage and elicits from Jesus a response that is uh, at one point both simple and profound and is probably the most consequential passage in all the Bible on the subject of marriage and divorce. And it's essential for us at the current crossroads of our society that we get crystal clarity on this issue because it goes to the very core, the very fundamental core of who you are as a person and the way God's made you. Let me just read this passage for us so that we can kind of know the framework of of what we're dealing with. We read in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him 
and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. Now, there's a lot to unpack in these few verses. And, and to be honest, it's going to take us a little while. This is today even, uh, you know, not so much a, a sermon, uh, maybe more of a lecture, or as my friend Paul Lamy likes to call it, a lerman. I'm going to give you a Lerman this morning. So uh, take your uh, pencils out and sharpen sharpen them, get your notebooks ready, because uh, we need to understand everything that Christ is saying here. We need to to, uh, get our heads around what God has to say about marriage and what it has to say about us. How he designed it what his purposes are, why he considers it so necessary, and why he mandates that we guard and protect it the way that he wants us to. Now, to do all that, I want us to trace out four important insights that are given to us in this passage in his interaction with Christ, four important insights into God's design for marriage, insights that are going to equip us not only to maintain its purpose, but to maximize its enjoyment and to protect its purity. These four insights that arise out of this text regarding God's design for marriage. And the first one is fairly straightforward. We can simply say that God's design for marriage is under assault. God's design for marriage is under assault, and it is and always has been under assault. I've already traced out in our own society what's happening around us, but really, if you want to get the full picture, you have to go all the way back to the very beginning, because the attacks on the institution of marriage began in the very beginning. Before you even get out of the Garden of Eden, you see that there is an attempt by the enemy to lure Eve away from her role as the helpmeet to her husband to undermine his role in guarding his family and to lead her into temptation in such a way as to cause her husband to stumble. As a matter of fact, he abrogates his role, no longer guarding and protecting, and 
yields to the leadership of his wife, follows her into temptation to such a point that Paul will later say in Romans chapter 5 that by Adam's act, by that one act of Adam, the curse of sin entered the human race. So already we have, we have the institution of marriage being upended before you ever get out of the garden. And of course, you don't have to read much further. You get into chapter 4 and you read just a few generations later, uh, Adam and Eve's descendants, one named Lamech, who in verse 19 of Genesis 4, uh, we're told, took to himself two wives. So he introduces this curse of polygamous marriage and perverts God's design. He himself was already an oppressive and violent man. In fact, we're told that because one young boy happened to wound him, he turned around and murdered the young boy and then developed a song, sang a song about it within his home to his two wives. He sings about his murderous act. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, The wheels are coming off. The whole world is being absolutely corrupted. In fact, we're told the Lord grieved over the fact that he even created man. It had gotten so bad. And you may remember, this is the point where he decides that he's going to destroy the whole earth by flood. But the catalyst behind that was actually a corruption of marriage. We're told that the sons of God were marrying the daughters of men. And there are different ideas. Some people think that that is the sons of Seth marrying the daughters of Cain, or yeah, the sons of Cain marrying the daughters of Seth and sort of spreading the corruption of Lamech. There are other people who think that the sons of God were these powerful uh, uh, warlords who were taking multiple wives to themselves and thus corrupting God's design for marriage. Other people believe that these were actually fallen angels, demonic beings who were intermarrying with human women, women and producing sort of angelic creatures that had to be destroyed by the flood. But whatever the view is on that, what is obvious is that it's centered on a corruption of marriage. And God's design for marriage and the way that he wanted it to the point that God came to the conclusion that he had to destroy the entire humanity, the entire creation with a flood and start all over with Noah's line. And of course, even after Noah, you don't have to read much further before you read the patriarchs and and Abram, who himself was suffering in his marriage because they were barren, he and his wife and Sarai comes up with this not so ingenious idea of having her husband sleep with their female slave, Hagar, so that they could produce an heir. Until she suddenly realizes when Hagar is pregnant and gives birth to a son, she suddenly realizes how jealous she is of Hagar and allows her sinful jealousy to then cause her to mistreat her slave and abuse her slave, cause her to run away. A few generations later, that one sin is multiplied in their grandson, Jacob, who has not one wife, but two, not one concubine, but two. With these four women, he produces any number of of, uh, heirs, 12 sons and multiple daughters. And all the time there's infighting and jealousy and animosity between the women and between the children. And throughout the book, you just get this idea that marriage... It's never quite on a solid footing. 
As the book closes in Genesis, of course, we know Israel is bound in captivity and slavery in Egypt, and we open up the pages of the following book in Exodus, and what we come to realize is that Israel, although they have multiplied many times over, although they number hundreds of thousands, maybe a a million people after uh, hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, they have now been so infected by the pagan and promiscuous culture of Egypt that they themselves had abandoned any matrimonial standards. They were, they were corrupted. They were engaging in, in fornication and adultery and prostitution. God brings them out of their slavery, but he doesn't bring them out of that mindset. And so even as he's going and establishing a, a, a new order, as he's giving them the law on the Mount of Sinai, reestablishing the high ground of marriage, laying laws that would call for the death penalty in the case of any kind of sexual immorality. Even as he's doing that very thing, at the foot of the mountain, the entire generation is engaged in all kinds of fornication and impurity. Israel couldn't even enforce their law to begin with because it would have created such a violent slaughter of all of them. It was impractical. And so divorces became rampant. People practicing immorality all the time. People being unfaithful to one another all the time. Divorces exploded. Moses tried to regulate them, but even that was difficulty. By the time you get to Israel's kings, even their earliest kings were polygamists, marrying multiple women. And it just goes on and on as you move through the centuries with Israel. Eventually they would begin to outwardly conform more and more to God's law because of their sort of religious strictures, but their hearts never changed. They were still adulterers and fornicators. They were still at their heart the same sort of polygamist and, and uh, unfaithful men and women they had always been. But now they started to mask it behind religious facade. They began to enter into all kinds of, of uh, extraneous debates about how they could fulfill their, their impure passions and yet still somehow claim to be a part of God's covenant family, complying with God's law. And so it led to this discussion and these debates about how they could carry on with these multiple relationships. And they, of course, came up and devised schemes of divorce. In fact, we have divorce certificates that date back hundreds of years before the time of Christ. And we, f- we found dozens of them in archaeological research indicating how prominent divorce was within Jewish circles. Now, all of this sort of helps us understand the environment when we come to Matthew chapter 19 and and this discussion that's taking place. Because when these men come to Jesus, they're coming for a singular reason. They're coming not because they want to reestablish a high ground of divorce, They're coming not because they are really even looking for any insight or clues. They're coming, Matthew tells us, to test Jesus. 
They're testing him. They are intentionally posing him a question that they believed would lure him into saying something that would offend these massive crowds and, and expose him to criticism and undermine his popularity. That's the whole point in verses 1 and 2. He, he finished his, his, uh, his uh, 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 lecture, his teaching there in Matthew chapter 18, and he begins his journey towards Judea. He's heading south from Galilee. This will be his final trek, his final journey. He's on, he's, he's taking, if you will, the first steps toward the cross. And as he begins that sort of heavy burden journey and knowing what's ahead of him, all along the way there are these crowds that are swelling around him. His popularity seems to be at its height and he's healing people all along the way and the Pharisees are seeing this and they can't stand it. And so we're told in verse 3 that they come up to him with this question to lure him into saying something that would undermine this popularity and bring him under criticism and their question has to do with divorce is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause this this is their sort of no-fault divorce mentality is it is it okay for people to divorce for any reason now that is basically a summary statement of a rabbinic debate that has taken place particularly in the in the uh, period right before Christ. In fact, Rabbi Hillel, who lived about 20 years before the birth of Christ, had taught this very thing. He had taken, he had lifted a statement out of Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses was regulating not divorce so much as remarriages. But in the course of regulating remarriages, he mentions the word divorce, and Hillel devises a teaching based off of a twisted understanding of that passage that said that a man could divorce his wife for any offense, any cause, anything that set him off at any moment, he could go and get a certificate of divorce. And this created a system, a culture of easy divorce that led to rampant divorce within Israel. And... uh, Really, what was happening is these people were finding ways to fulfill, as I said, their sinful indulgences and still claim to follow God. All of it under the guise of religious cover, but all of it, all of it still undermining, all of it still rejecting God's design. His design for marriage has always, always been under assault. Well, Jesus hears all this. And he's not going to get drawn into some rabbinical debate about some specific justification for divorce. Instead, what he does is he points them back to the very beginning, to the time before any of the corruptions ever came in, to the time when the world was perfect, to the time when God originally designed marriage to try to get them to understand what is fundamentally wrong, not just about divorce, but about their whole question. It's our second insight that we find in this passage, and, and that's that God's design for marriage unites men and women. God's design for marriage unites men and women. That's where Jesus takes them. In verse 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them 
male and female. That's the fundamental point. Don't you realize that God made man male and female? Now, from that fundamental point flows a whole host of implications. And Jesus talks about them. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. But really, all of this flows out of that fundamental point of how God made men and women. And it's a remarkable answer when it comes to their question. He highlights, essentially, God's original design for humanity with the created order. He quotes for them straight out of Genesis 1.27, a threefold formula that was given at the very beginning. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's where he goes. Now, in and of itself, that doesn't say anything specific about marriage, obviously. The word is not mentioned. It speaks about us being created and created in the image of God. And it clarifies that that image equally applies to men and women, males and females. But embedded in this fundamental idea of image is the idea of marriage. This is the big point. Embedded in the idea of image is the idea of marriage between a man and a woman. And it becomes evident as you continue to read in the next verse of Genesis, Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when God establishes humanity in his image, one of the aspects of that image is this duty that we are to fulfill. We are to be his image, or another way to say that is we are to represent God on the face of the earth. That's basically what is behind the language there, the Two Hebrew words for image and for, for likeness. They have the, the idea of a replica, of a visible representation of something. Much like ancient kings, when they conquered a territory, they would typically establish a statue of themselves before they left. So that when they were out of the way and no longer visible, people could look on their monarch and they could be reminded of who is ruling over that territory. Well, God establishes a symbol of himself, and that symbol of himself is humanity in masculinity and femininity, in men and women. We're given this royal office with this royal vocation, if you will, to be the administrator and the symbol of God's rule on the earth. And we are entrusted with the task of extending and carrying out that rule on the earth. And in that way, we represent and reflect him. Now, in carrying out that role, God has uniquely equipped us. 
He has equipped us with certain aspects of intelligence and rationality and emotion and spirituality. Those things are necessary for us to properly carry out this role. And by the way, those are the very things that were marred in the fall when sin came in. It corrupted all of that within us. Our rationality, our our intelligence, our emotions, everything is all messed up now because of sin. And all that stuff has to be made right through redemption in Christ, but those are not the end. Those are just the tools that facilitate us fulfilling our role as the image of God. And that's not the only thing. The other thing with which we are prepared, the other way in which we are equipped is that we are created as two, as dual genders, as male and female, And this is necessary for us to fulfill our role. Alistair Roberts writes here, saying, quote, The creation that God delegates rule over to mankind is an incomplete creation. Outside of the garden, the earth still needs to be subdued, filled, and named. And God prepares Adam for this task by giving him a worked model and a period of apprenticeship in the Garden of Eden, a kindergarten for humanity in its infancy. In Genesis 2, God charges Adam with working on a part of the creation that he had left unfinished and oversees him in that task. And although God had named all the regions established on the first three days of creation, all the creatures which God had then populated the earth with remained unnamed. God brings these creatures to Adam in order that he might complete this part of the work of creation. God started the work, but then he entrusted the rest of the work to Adam. And along with that, it was clear that there was work outside the garden. Work that had to be done in subduing and bringing dominion. In finding and discovering natural resources and tapping and utilizing all of those things all across the face of the earth and to and to do this man was going to have to be multiplying and filling the earth all of this fulfilling the royal role of representing God over his creation representing him as his image and extending his creative rule over the earth and what's clear as I said, from the entire passage, is that God entrusted this not to Adam, but to both of them. To them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Men and women together are shaped for this role. And a significant portion of our representative role is the fruitfulness and the filling of the earth that we are supposed to do. Or another way to say this is we are reflecting God's rule and God's image in the fact that He is the one who created us, and then in turn we procreate. He's the creator, we're the procreator. And in that way, we are representing and extending God's rule over the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, this becomes even more clear in Genesis chapter 5 in verse 1 
When God, it says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when he created them. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So now Adam is extending the creative work of God as the procreator, but doing that exactly the way God wanted him to do it. We're given this task now of bringing forth these new image bearers. Images of both God and of ourselves as a part of our role in being God's image on the face of the earth. And in giving us that task, this is one of the reasons why God made them male and female. It becomes obvious that both genders are necessary then in fulfilling this role. They're necessary at a fundamental point. Some... uh, Writers actually believe that the duality there is a a further extension of the duality that God was already foreshadowing in all of creation. He started by separating the light from the darkness, the sun from the moon, the sea from the dry land, and males from females. All of this reflecting his perfect beauty and balance. And by the way, these aren't two extreme ends of a spectrum of humanity. A spectrum through which you and I pass back and forth fluidly. These are distinct, distinct roles and yet complementary. Created with a certain biological order for heterosexual unions as a mode of human procreation and fulfilling the image of God. Now, the sad thing is that we've reached the point in society where all the beauty and balance of all of that is no longer something to be celebrated. It's something to be overcome. It's a problem to be solved. The fact that people are born this way. Society is past the point of teaching people the glad acceptance of the way that God has made them and now is really promoting this contempt of self, a contempt of the way that you've been made. People are at war, not only with their own bodies, they're at war with the entire design of God in themselves and in marriage. At the very core of their being, they're made in the image of God. And these distinctions, this image of God is reflected in these gender distinctions and the marriage that flows out of it. And yet it is something that is fundamentally in upheaval in our society. Owen Strayan says, no idea has swept over recent American cultural life like that of transgenderism. It's not the that the phenomenon of gender dysphoria is new, nor is it new that men and women have sought to cross over the boundaries of their own sex and embrace the identity or the appearance of the opposite sex. This, these instincts are in many societies, though nearly always in the, on the fringe, he says. What's new in our time is the full-fledged push to normalize transgender identity. So the basic framework itself 
is being undermined. Now, after this framework is laid out, the writer of Hebrews, excuse me, the writer of Genesis gives us further insight. He gives us the ability to further understand what this is all about by narrating for us in Genesis chapter 2 the details of this sixth day of creation. He gives us more insight into this fundamental reality of who you are and who I am as male and female and its implications in marriage. We realize as we start to read Genesis chapter 2 that at the beginning of the day, Adam was created alone. Everything else was not created that way. We're told that the seas were swarming in abundance. We're told the skies were filled with birds and creeping things on the land all over the place. You're given the idea of multiplicity in terms of all the sort of kinds and creatures. But man, humanity, there was only one, Adam. And interestingly, as you move through the creation account, at the end of every created day, God stops to reflect on what has been made, and He declares, He saw that it was good. Everything was good. It was all good over and over again. It was good, and it was good, and it was good. But when you come to this, to the solitary state of Adam, the first time you encounter God saying anything wasn't good. It's not good God said that man should be alone. Now, this is not as if he suddenly discovered a flaw in the uh, design, uh, something he had overlooked. This isn't an afterthought. Some people think that that's kind of what woman is. She's just kind of a, an, a, a, an add-on at the end. But no, this is all intentional, very intentional. God wanted to accentuate how special woman was. And so he, he, if you will, puts her in that crowning spot at the pinnacle of the day. We're told that Adam uh, was put into a, a deep sleep there on the third day, which is, by the way, why I tell everyone I love naps. They're ordained. They're right there in the text. Saturday afternoon nap. He puts Adam into a deep sleep in the middle of the day and takes a rib from his side, closes up the flesh, we're told, and from that rib he fashions a woman into, or fashions uh, the rib into a woman, such that when Adam wakes up, he declares, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now this is fundamental because we know that Adam was formed in a completely different way. Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth, but woman was formed out of man. And so you have this this, uh, very vivid picture of one becoming two. One single solitary person becoming two. And you have this awareness of this work that God is doing in his image in dividing it in such a way that it can fulfill its ultimate purpose. It wasn't good in a singularity, and it becomes good as he does this work. All along the way, he's accentuating to Adam the necessity and even the glory of this. Adam is, is sort of 
going through the process of naming all the animals. He's watching them all come by and he sees them and one of them walks alongside of another and one of them is slightly larger, the other a little bit smaller. They seem to be paired off. One of them comes along and it's got this big furry mane and another comes along and it's sort of sleek and glorious. And he says, oh, those are lions over there. But they're not exactly the same. They're both lions, but they're not exactly the same. And you wonder, as all that sort of was taking place and the sort of the, the ebbs and the flow of the process, you wonder at some point that Adam began to realize that there's no one like that for him. There's no one that really compliments him. Maybe even a, a sadness that arose in his heart. And so when God puts him to sleep and he awakes, he realizes that God has completed the work. And he's now made what the Scripture calls a helper suitable to Adam. Now, don't get the wrong idea. When you hear that word helper, some people hear that and they kind of think, well, yeah, that's somebody to clean my dishes and make my bed and carry out the trash. But as MacArthur points out, he says Adam could have managed those kinds of duties without a wife, but he had more and a more important duty for which he, he needed her help. He was to procreate, to propagate the human race, to populate the earth with people, and obviously he needed a partner for that. He realized that in his role as the image of God, he could not do this. Alistair Roberts again says, If it were for the naming of the animals, the task had already been completed. If it were for purely the labor of tilling the earth, a male helper would have almost certainly been preferable. And while men can undoubtedly find companionship of women very pleasant and vice versa, beyond the first flush of young love, it's in the companionship of members of their own sex that many men and women choose to spend the majority of their time. The primary help that woman was to provide was to assist Adam in the task of filling the earth through childbearing. In other words, the, 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 the primary issue of Adam's aloneness wasn't his sort of emotional, psychological feeling, but the fact of that he couldn't fulfill his purpose. And so he came to realize that he needed another. And so the text makes clear that these differences, these differences are not just incidental. They are essential. They're deeply meaningful for us reflecting and doing the very thing God created us to do. He made us male and female, and through that distinction and that combination We are to reflect Him in all the ways that He wants us to reflect Him. And there's a a, a sort of a, a biological element to that and a social element to that. Both genders participate in the in the role as royal representatives of God but we also understand that there are differences in our physical and social makeup that make us where we're not interchangeable. There are functions 
that are particularly pronounced from men and women. Again, Roberts writes, in the task of exercising dominion and subduing creation, man is advantaged by reason of his typically significantly greater physical strength, resilience, and willingness to expose himself to risk. He also has his advantage on the account of the greater social strength of bands of men. In the task of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, however, the most important capabilities belong to women. It's women who bear children, who play the primary role in nurturing them, who play the chief role in establishing the communion that lies at the heart of human society. And all of this is sort of bound up in the way that God wants us fulfilling His image. These distinctions, even sequenced the way they are in the first days of creation. God lays it all out, you understand? Not just as some raw timetable, but as a normative pattern. That's why whenever you get to the very end of of Genesis 2, the writer if you will, steps out from behind the lens. Uh, I guess creators call that the fourth wall, right? He breaks through the fourth wall. He steps out from behind the lens to actually address us as readers based on everything that we have heard up to this point. And he talks directly to us and he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is, of course, the very verse that Jesus cites. He embraces this whole idea that everything that was done, everything that was ordered by God, all of it was a normative pattern for us to observe and follow. Because at its very heart, one man was made into two. And those two balanced parts are to reflect God's image by becoming one. In fact, that oneness happens not only through the marital union as the text implies there, but that oneness happens even as we join together our genetic code and procreate and once again extend the work of God so that continually in a repeated fashion you have this demonstration of God's work of bringing two into one. Two into one. This says two were brought out of one. Now this is where all of this comes to, to bear on this whole discussion of these Pharisees. Because what Jesus is basically telling them, don't you understand that God's fundamental design was two? Don't you get it? God's fundamental design was two. And it wasn't a preferential issue. And it wasn't a practical issue. 
And God, God didn't design it so that you could have three in one or four or five or any of those other things. God didn't design it for one to divide himself between two women or three women or one woman to divide herself between multiple men. God didn't design uh, uh, polygamy. He didn't design adultery. He didn't design fornication. He didn't design multiple partners. He didn't design any of that. Don't you understand that at the very fiber of the way that you were made, the very core of your person as the image of God, God divided you into two and he designed you to come together as two. So before you even have this conversation about divorce, before you even begin to uh, contemplate all the ways that you can get around that model to follow and indulge your sinful preferences, you need to come back to that fundamental idea at the very, very core. God designed two so that they could be one. And that's all he ever designed. That's all he ever designed. So everything that you're doing to violate that, to smear that, to undermine that, to distort that and pollute that, everything that you're doing, you are undermining yourself. You're undermining your role. You're undermining the very dominion and purpose that God has entrusted to you. Now, all of that sort of lays a foundation for us to then come back next week, Lord willing, and to begin to unpack the devastating consequences of deviation from this pattern. And particularly as it's expressed in divorce, why that is so heinous an idea for God's design of marriage. Now, thankfully, I will add that while these deviations happen and while all of these sort of distortions have come into our life as a part of this corrupt world, God's in the business of taking what has fallen and broken and restoring. He's in the business of taking even us who have marred our inner man and distorted our image because of our sin and recreating us, the scripture says, in the likeness of the image of himself. He created us. We distorted it through our sin. But God's forgiveness and God's mercies are able to cleanse even that and to set us aright so that we can live the way he designed us to live. And that'll be a focus for our time as well next week. Father, we're grateful for these kind of insights. They're so necessary for us because around us, our culture and society is attacking your plan undermining us in our very being as the images of God and frustrating our experience on this earth. Lord, for that, we need your word to clarify and we need your gospel to cleanse. We need your spirit to renew 
us personally, individually, and then within our marriages to purify us, our hearts, so that we gladly embrace your plan for us, carrying out the design for which we were made. We pray that you would help us to do that in the coming weeks. We ask in Christ's name, amen.